if you're visiting with us this morning, we're near the end of a series called Live No Lies. And the idea is this, that um, all of us swim in this kind of battle that uh, is raging within us and around us with the, with the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the classic enemies of the soul that uh, church history has banged on about for a long time. And we're trying to reclaim some of that ancient wisdom to help us make sense of why we, it is we have to normalize the fact we're at war. It's a bit of a battle. And, uh, and that's, it's a nice relief, actually, to know that, okay, <laughs> it's kind of normal. And normalize the fact we're at war. Uh, and we've looked at the devil. And we've looked at the flesh. This morning we're looking at the world. And we're choosing to come under the authority and wisdom of Jesus and do our best to apply that to our lives. Uh, and we've talked about a, a number of practices that are like spiritual warfare. If you want to fight well, there's spiritual disciplines that you can put in place in your life. And those spiritual disciplines are like spiritual warfare. But the beautiful thing about God is that even when we um, really screw up, He's there. Oh, such great news. We're going to finish with communion this morning. We do uh, communion every week. We're going to do it this week at the end of the sermon. Um, just to remind us, like of just of His grace and His mercy, we're all on a journey. We're all vulnerable as humans. Um, and so He gives us the wisdom and invites us to be transformed from glory to glory and to live a more sanctified life in which our souls flourish. But even when we fall short, He's there ready to embrace us. And so like we say all the time, let your sin propel you towards God, not away from Him. Run to the only one who can make you clean. And, uh, and He embraces us in our time of need. And so we've been working our way through, and this series is based from a book called John, uh, by a guy called John Mark Comer. I'm actually off to uh, a conference that he's running live on Thursday, so I'm very excited about that. Uh, been a huge influence on uh, my life, and so I'm traveling with five or six other pastors overseas to Portland, Oregon. To, um, to uh, I'm just, I can't wait. I'm so giddy with excitement. Not only do I not have to parent for a week, which is, is itself quite a, an exciting thought. Um, happy Father's Day, Father's Day. You can't give me vibes, not today. Um, but, um, but it's so rare that I get to go into an environment where I'm not running the meeting. And I just, I just know God's going to speak to me. And I'm traveling with guys that are hungry and, and just lots of fun. So anyway, uh, so we've been working through a book um, uh, called Live No Lies based on the series here. And the idea is this, that the way, main way the devil works to wreck souls isn't by giving you a flat tire or, or you're not getting a car park or having an argument with the wife and all the rest of it. That He maybe is involved, but most likely, particularly with the argument with the wife, Again, just like I illustrated about literally 30 seconds ago, it's probably on me, that little one, you know. That may not be the devil. That may just be Harvey being a bit of an idiot. And so, But the main way that the enemy works, the devil works, is he, he's the king of lies. And it's not obvious lies. Steve, would you mind turning off the um, urn things? It's not the obvious lies. It's like it's, he, it's, de, it's deception. It's like a click or two off, and it feels like truth. And, uh, and it plays to the disordered desires of our flesh. We talked about the last couple of weeks. And then it gets normalized in a sinful society. And so that's, that's how the enemy just wrecks souls and wrecks society, is these deceptive ideas that play to the disordered desires of our flesh that get normalized in a sinful society. That's why there's so much mental health issues, so much teenage suicide. We live in a very broken world. Um, and so... Um, before we dive into the text uh, this morning that we're going to look from, look based from, I want to say that in the same way with the flesh, the Bible doesn't say, it doesn't begin with, hey, you're a grubby little worthless worm. <laughs> you know? You're just, oh, you're so sinful. The, the Bible starts with, no, you've been created in the image of a good God. 
You carry the image of God. You are so precious and beautiful that God would die for you. Like that, so that's where it begins. But then there is this fallen, bent part of us that's in rebellion against God that's in our flesh. And so um, our identity is a good. Our condition is there's a bit of sinful brokenness in it, in us. Um, and it's the same with the world. The world's created good. Uh, and then... Uh, uh, and we're called to steward and enjoy the beauty of this world and enjoy the glory of creation. But there's this part of this world that's bent against God, um, uh, bent against God, and this is the water that we swim in. Um, I had this uh, guy I met a number of years ago. I called um, Grant Norsworthy. Grant, um, Grant had, was in this band, uh, Paul Common Trio. Does anyone remember the Paul Common Trio? Um, or Sonic Flood. He played bass in this band called Sonic Flood. So he was based in Nashville um, over in the States. And, he, uh, and when he was playing for Sonic Flood, he turned up, uh, he, he had a gig somewhere, so he jumped on the plane, landed wherever the gig was, and got picked up by this kid who was going to drive him to the festival, which is about an hour away. So he drives along, for the, you know, gets picked up, lovely guy, you know, wanders out the airport with his bass guitar and stuff, and then and goes all the way to this festival. And the guy's lovely, and he's a big fan of Sonic Flood and that sort of thing. And then when Grant, like, finally gets into, like, the green room or whatever, he looks in the mirror and sees that he's been travelling like this. He's had this one lens that's been missing. <laughs> and he's like, he says to the guy, like, why didn't you say anything? I've been looking like an idiot for the, since I landed. The, like, and he's like, oh, I just thought it was this new rock star thing that you guys were doing. I thought it was this kind of... And what had happened, and it's interesting, it's happening for me now, is that my left eye is adjusting to the fact that I've got the lens and it's a bit darker. And, and I literally, it's, it's very hard to tell for me right now which one is missing. And that's the, that's the, this is the thing with the world, is that when it's the water you swim in, you actually just lose sight of the fact that there's something there that's maybe not healthy or correct, like how worldviews can get a bit messed up. And so uh, the, the whole idea this morning is I'm praying that God gives us all revelation so that we can see the lens again. <laughs> so, oh, that's there. So we can actually begin to see like the waters that we're swimming in. In John 17, Jesus says this. Jesus says a lot of stuff about the world. He says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, and I have sent them into the world. So we're in this world that we kind of swim in, and Jesus is like, Hey, I want, to, I want them to be protected from the world. They're not called to be removed from it, but they just his heart was that we'd be protected in it. Um, me and Jen have been talking recently a lot about a lot of the ways that God's truth has helped change, um, help us see some lenses that we didn't realize were there. For example, um, very early on when we got married, um, we watched the movie Love Actually. Um, I've got a, you guys have, and it's sort of like, oh, you know, love is and then, like, about, it must have been only, what, three years ago or something like that, we're like, oh, you know, let's, you know, let's find a rom-com to watch. And I remember, oh, I remember watching that, seemed to enjoy it. And then we watched it again, and it was, like, traumatic. <laughs> it was like, ugh. All of a sudden, like, you know, it was like, oh, this is just so broken, like, every relationship. And this movie isn't showing, it's showing some sort of pain, but it's, it's minimizing so much of the brokenness that goes on when relationships get super funky and sleeping around gets normalized and affairs get celebrated and all this sort of stuff. And it was just like, we would like, and it's again, a lot of pastoral work that we've done with people going through really painful stuff 
who have lived through scenarios that this movie showed as kind of being normal and fun, and we're like, and we're watching it, and it was like, we just, in the end, we're like, flag this, man. Like, this is just, this is too tough to watch because, because we couldn't see the consequences of all those choices when we first watched it, but God's truth has so changed our worldview that now we can see the lie that it is and the consequences that this movie isn't showing, and it was tough watching. And that's what I, that's kind of like, I think what the follower of Jesus will increasingly want to do is get so permeated with Jesus's truth that you can see things for what they really are. And it's interesting, like, um, because in the the Live No Lies book, he, he explores like how, like how does culture or the world make us do things? And there's two ways. There's what they call hard power. So that's like a government enforcing something. We've experienced something of that last year um, where it was like, you know, in my opinion, some overreaching of a few things and all the rest of it. And it was just tough. And it was like there's a hard power there. Now, very minimal what we went through compared to many other uh, dictatorial regimes, North Korea, whatever, where it's like they just make you do stuff. And if you don't do it, you get killed. Uh, similar to the time of Jesus and that sort of thing. But predominantly what we have to wrestle with in the West is soft power. And so this is the attempt to control or influence by behaviour by appealing to people's sensual desires. So people making movies are a soft power that normalise behaviours that perhaps are harmful or show no consequences. Um, and so Jesus saw the world not as just this great big temptation to avoid, but it's actually a threat to be on your guard against. So let's dive into what he means by, by the world here. Um, the world uh, in the Greek is this uh, word cosmos, which again, we get the word cosmos. <laughs> uh, but you know, we talked about the Greek word, the flesh. It has more than one meaning in the same way, like in English, a ball can mean a brown bouncy thing, a formal dance or a good time, had a ball. Um, you know, you've got these different uh, meanings of this word. So the word can mean the universe. It can mean humanity. God so loved the world. Um, but when uh, the Paul and, and in this case Jesus uh, is talking about the world, they're talking about the system of practices and standards associated with secular society. Um, John Mark in his book defines it like this. The world's a system of ideas, values, morals, practices and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalised in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. That's, a, that's dense, but a very helpful summary of what the world is, uh, according to the Scriptures. And you've got to remember, this goes right back to Genesis 1. The devil's temptation to Adam and Eve was two parts. Number one, to rebel or seize autonomy from God. Or what you could say is to secularise their life. So I'm going to live without God to live apart from God. And secondly, to redefine good and evil based on the voices in their head personified as the snake, later identified as the devil, and the disordered desires of their own hearts. And so the world is what happens when Adam and Eve's sin goes viral and spreads through society. And the result is that the distorted becomes normative. And sin is recast as any number of things. Sin is recast as freedom or human rights or reproductive justice or just the way things are or boy Boys will be boys, anything but sin. And it's really full on, right? We know we swim in this world and, and we're all at different varying levels of being able to see it for what it really is. But in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, it says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. 
Now, uh, really important that like when Isaiah says "whoa," it's not some street preacher spitting away like you know hellfire brimstone, you know whoa, you know we're angry and aggressive. It's it's a groan. Oh, whoa! Like the opposite is like wow or oh, <laughs> this is whoa, whoa. It's a great sadness. Uh, A.W. Tozer used this kind of analogy, like as a sailor once navigated the world by stars, we once navigated in the world by the true north of God and his vision of good and evil. But in the world, and especially in the secular, mostly progressive West, we no longer get our bearings from God. The old moral absolutes have pretty much all been called into question. And the new authority, and we explored this during the whole thing of the flesh, is the authentic self. That's the thing that, uh, that guides us. It's defined as desire and feelings. And as a result, we've really lost a sense of direction, other than our own emotional inner rudders, which all too frequently lead us astray and cause us enormous amount of pain. And so in our, uh, in our culture, which is what I would call our world, the, the culture that we live in, lust has been redefined as love. Marriage is not a covenant of lifelong fidelity, but a contract for personal fulfillment. Um, the objectification of women's sexuality through f- porn has crazily been called female empowerment. Greed has is, is been redefined as responsibility to shareholders. Gross injustice towards factory workers in the developing world is just called globalism. Environmental degradation is just progress. Racism is just a past issue. Um, abortion, um, which is effectively the greatest inf- infanticide of human history, is reca- recast as reproductive justice. Whoa, whoa, oh, oh. This, I know this is heavy, but this is the world we, we live in. Um, this guy, Theo Hobson, wrote a book called Reinventing Liberal Christianity, and he said this, what was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned, and those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. Sobering um, kind of picture of, of often where we're at. Jesus said this in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Um, that's, um, now, um, I've got to say this. Often I feel like the church is like, man, the world hates us, you know. And it's like, well, half the time it's because you guys be Muppets. You know, it's like the world hates you. It's like, well, you're just an idiot. Like, what? Like, so we've got to have the, the humility to discern if we've been hated for the right reasons. <laughs> Sometimes there's a critique that comes from the outside of the church is something we actually need to hear. <laughs> like, there's some stuff in the media, obviously, recently about one of New Zealand's largest churches about the way that they've treated people. And it's like, mate, justifiable critique. That's not just a small error. That's a large-scale failure. It's a systematic failure in terms of how people should feel like they're treated in a church. So that's not like, oh, the world hates us. It's like, no, you've been idiots. You deserve a bit of a, bit of a you know, public. It's like you're seriously. Why does society expect some level of, you know, consistency? And, um, and there's so much hypocrisy. And often we're banging the drums about, you know, stuff. And I'm like, oh, you know, I personally get very right up. But... There are times when you are going to be, I mean, Jesus used this word hate to push our thinking, but it's like you're going to struggle because of your faithfulness to Jesus. And most of you guys are going to feel pretty lonely in terms of 
your moral vision or whatever it may be that you have as you let Jesus shape your worldview more and more and more. And now remember, I've, I've got to underline this because it's been a heavy talk already. Every single thing Jesus calls us to is motivated by pure love and leads us to life. Everything, no exceptions, 100% track record. The Scriptures are there. Everything's motivated by love and leads us to life. Even when it's a narrow road, leads it, even when you have to pick up your cross and it feels like your flesh is dying. The story doesn't end on Friday, it ends on Sunday with new resurrection life bursting into your world. So uh, we, Jesus is like, we belong to the world, um, but at the end of the day, the world shouldn't love us because we belong to the kingdom of God. <laughs> Um, and, and the reality, though, is that we cannot understate the, the strength of the forces at work. I had the privilege, uh, me and Jen had um, the team-based seniors and our youth, uh, and the cool kids in the back row there, uh, with us on uh, Friday night. And it's like, it was a great day, meaningful with our youth. And I'm like, the, the pressure that our youth are under in high school, in terms of what's normalised, in terms of okay behaviour, that's actually hyper-destructive behaviour that will wreak havoc on souls. It can't be overstated. So I'm like, what a privilege that we get to get the wise, amazing kids with a deep faith already. I couldn't have been prouder. But I'm like, man, we've got to support these kids. And we've got to cheer each other on here that we walk to the beat of a different drum. And that drum leads us to life. And we're called to live a prophetic lifestyle. We're called to be this great. But the problem, uh, 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 Corinthians 15 verse 32, 33, sorry, says, bad, corrupt me, bad company corrupts good character. So I'm like, again, why well, the church is super important. We're going to talk about that in a second. But I'm like, like you, we just swim in this stuff. And after a while, it's like it can just become normal. I would even go so far as to say bad, al- bad algorithms <laughs> distort and corrupt good character. Like we just, we swim in this both uh, connected digital world and a relational world. And both of them shape our worldviews. And we live in this culture where the things that Jesus and John say watch out for, our wider culture actually celebrates um, and the enemy comes and it whispers lies to us that play to our disordered desires. Uh, and so we have to be very, very careful. And this is why the truth sets us free. Now, I want to be super clear here. The people of the world are not our enemy. Uh, Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, including people of differing religious, ethical or political perspectives. God so loved the people of the world that he gave his one and only son. Our fight is not against them, but for them. And this is why, um, next slide, uh, Ramon, uh, uh, the tone in which we communicate, particularly on social media, is super important. It should always feel like love. Uh, and this amazing uh, activist, Daniel Berrigan, who was an anti-war activist, a Christian pacifist and on, uh, he, he was arrested a number of times for civil disobedience, particularly protesting the Vietnam War. But he steadfastly affirmed that a prophet makes a vow of love, not of alienation. Hence, in, every, in our every attempt to defend truth, to speak for justice, and to speak truth to power, our dominant tone must be one of love, not anger or hatred. And I think this is very important in the, the waters that we're swimming in, particularly politically at the moment, uh, around this. 1 Corinthians 13 is our filter for how we want to live our lives more and more. And, and um, churches used to not talk about politics anymore. I'm going to tell you every single political cycle, I'm doing at least two or three sermons on politics in the kingdom of God. I want to help disciple us around how we navigate that whole space because it's become religious and further. 
and I'm going to tell you how to vote. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> Goodbye, Bay Vineyard. <laughs> How'd that end? Oh, Harvey told him to vote for the McGillicuddy Serious Party. All right. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. John warns against these three lusts of the world. The lust of the flesh, um, clearly in, uh, he had in mind sexual temptation. Um, the epitome of love deformed. We're an image bearer. We were made to give sacrificial love to becomes an object of desire we take pleasure from, even if it's consensual. But it includes more than just sexual desire. It's any desire our flesh for food, drink, instant gratification, control, domination over others, and on and on the list can go. The lust of the eyes, greed was in uh, John's crosshairs here, but also envy and jealousy and discontentment and the cancerous restlessness of our age. Um, it's interesting, I read this out to our, our team uh, Bay seniors on uh, Friday night, but a guy called Matt Haig <laughs> wrote this book, and he said, like, man, the world's increasingly designed to depress us. Happiness isn't very good for the economy. If you, we were happy with what we had, why would we need more? How do you sell anti-aging moisturiser? You make someone worry about ageing. How do you get people to vote for a political party? You make them worry about immigration, for example. How do you get them to buy insurance by making them worry about everything? How do you have, get them to have plastic surgery by highlighting their physical flaws? How do you get them to watch a TV show by making them feel like they're missing out? How do you get them to, make a, to buy a new smartphone, make them feel like they're being left behind? To be calm becomes a kind of revolutionary act to be happy with our non-upgraded existence, to be comfortable with our messy human selves, but that wouldn't be good for business. Right? We swim in this whole thing that's trying to stir up the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh and envy and all that sort of stuff, the pride of life, that human bent in all of us to go our own way, rebel against authorities and to think we know better than our, our, uh, our wiser elder counterparts. And interesting, like for Jesus, he faced these temptations head on in the wilderness. The devil came and tempted him in three ways. The lust of the flesh, the temptation to turn stones into bread and to give into his body's desires, craving for, for some, some, um, some food and some pleasure. The lust of the eyes, the temptation to bow down and worship the devil and in turn receive all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, to have it all with no boundaries. And the pride of life, the temptation to throw himself down from the high point of the temple and to receive the glory and awe of humankind, to turn his life into a spectacle, to become a celebrity. Jesus faced all of these temptations and he overcame them, hallelujah. And he invites us to do the same and empowers us by his spirit to do that. So the question that we have to ask constantly is if we're serious about following Jesus, uh, in what ways have I been assimilated in this culture? In what ways am I wearing glasses and I've lost a bit of sight, I've lost a bit of perspective around what's his way and his and not his way? It's like it's so hard to see. It's but but again, by God by His Spirit, it's been bringing so much revelation over this series. It's been amazing. Um, and because this is where what you know again, seeing Mike. You know what happened with Mikey? I didn't mention last Sunday's. He's off surfing today. I was like, maybe revival on Friday, and you sneak off surfing on Sunday, but that's all right. Um, <laughs> with Aaron Greaves as well, we might as well publicly name and shame a few of the boys that aren't there this morning. Uh, <laughs> Better listen to the podcast, boys. Um, 
But it's like there's Mike sitting at the back row last Sunday. We invite the Holy Spirit to come at the end of the sermon and, and, and to help us lean into some practices that would be spiritual warfare to fight the flesh. And he felt the Holy Spirit say to him very clearly, um, I want you to stop listening to the Radio Hierarchy podcast, which is just, just stuff. It's not, not really naughty, but it's just smutty. It's just stuff. He's like, no. So he's just been feeding himself all week with other stuff and like other podcasts and that sort of thing. And then on Friday... God meets him. Because when, with, with obedience comes blessing. And with obedience comes breakthrough. And with application, that's when our life gets transformed and we build it on the rock. And so the, the danger, I think, in the West is that we have this kind of DIY faith that's a mix of the way of Jesus, consumerism, secular, sexual ethics, and radical individualism. But I'm like, no, Jesus, you're king. You're Lord of, for me to die as Christ and to, uh, to, 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 to die as, as gain and to live as Christ. It's like, is it Jesus, you're everything. I want to orientate my life around you. And rather, like, I want to come under the authority of the Scriptures. I want to come under your authority of Lord of my life. And I want you to speak to me because your voice is the only one that leads me to life. And I don't want to just bolt you. I don't want you as a hobby. I want you as king. I want to have you like in my life and framing my entire worldview. And the more that you do that, the more you begin to see things for what they really are. And, and the church, like where's the church are called? Literally in the Greek, the church, is, the thing is, we're the, we're the called out ones. That's literally what the, the, the church means, literally in the Greek, called out. So we're not a, it's like this isn't community primarily of comfort, but of calling out of a whole system and culture into a new kingdom where Jesus is Lord. With the called out ones. And that's why uh, in the Bible it's interesting, like they use this word like we're aliens, we're strangers in a strange land. This is not our home. This isn't the way it's meant to be. One of the most frequent words used in the Bible for followers of Jesus in this time is, is a remnant. And uh, John Mark in his book says it like this The remnant is this label used through the library of Scripture for the small group inside Israel and later the church that was loyal to God when the majority of people were not. That's the world we live in, right? What Barna called resilient disciples. I love that, resilient disciples. Um, this is why pastoring at this day and age is so much fun. A part of me wishes I, I, um, I was pastoring in the 90s because all you needed was drums and church and your church would grow and be amazing. And it was like, but it's like these days, it's like you've got to be a resilient disciple. Otherwise, why would you bother? There's too much pressure. And so I love this. I love it very much. Anyway, you guys are resilient disciples. It's Paul to the Romans. At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Or so it's God's word to Elijah in 1 Kings 19 verse Verse 18, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. 7,000 is a symbolic number, meaning there are more than you think. We are not alone, even though sometimes we may feel it. It's those with the courageous fidelity to orthodoxy in a time of widespread syncretism on both the left and the right. He's, a, he's too smart for his own good. Half those words I don't understand. It's all cool if you don't either. But I'm like, but what the main point is this that there is this group of people that say, I'm going to stay faithful to your way, Jesus, even if it's awkward at work, even if it's awkward online sometimes, blah, blah, blah. So every sermon, we're given practices that you can apply to your life that will help you uh, overcome and fight wisely and well the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, so particularly in the, in the last couple of weeks, the devil and the flesh. So again, you can go back in the podcast if you haven't heard those. And, and as I gave my little rant last week, those that apply the word to their lives are the people that build their life on the rock. So if, if you want, it's like all about application, right? But here's the practice. 
Here's the practice for, for the, how do we navigate the world. And it's simply this, be deeply committed to the church. I saw, everyone's like, boo. Of course the pastor says that, lame. <laughs> Let me explain why. John Mark's first idea, so like, boo him, oh, chill out. <laughs> Such a muted response. All right. By following Jesus together, not alone, we are able to, number one, discern Jesus' truth from the devil's lies. Number two, help one another override our flesh by the Spirit. And number three, form a robust community of deep relationships that functions, here we go, Rage Against Machine fans, as a counterculture to the world. In doing so, we're able to resist the gravitational pull of all three enemies of our soul. That's why church is important. Um, John Tyson, who's probably my favoriteest of all the preachers in the world, he, he talks about um, this beautiful resistance to the world and its vision of life, of a uh, life of rebellion against God. Like I love this picture. Like, and I, I pray that as I just go through the stuff, that you'll grasp a fresh vision for what this whole thing's about. It's not a service on a Sunday. It's a counterculture. That's good. We're a group on the margins of a host culture living in alternative but compelling and beautiful way. That's who we're called to be. A prophetic signpost to kingdom life in a culture of death. We're called to create this alternative community of justice and equality, uh, this beautiful multi-ethnic community filled with love and compassion. And that we invite the world, our our friends around us, to this new way to be human, (laughs) to actually become human, to become fully alive. And we want to be at this community that, um, that plays its part mainly through prayer in affecting our wider culture in an influential way, but not in a control-based way. That's why I've got real issue with everyone saying, hey, we're trying to... Rest-. Everyone, like Christian leaders trying to make Christ- New Zealand Christian again through legislation is mental to me. I'm like, that's not how it ever worked. That's not... Jesus didn't go there. In fact... Um, we don't put the Old Testament, it's interesting in the New Testament, the, the Old Testament vision for justice was not put on the state, it was put on, the expectation was put on the church, live it out. And the teachings of Jesus, interestingly, in the book of Acts, so little is said about the gross injustice of the Roman Empire. It's this glaring and intentional omission and the silence is designed to say something. The talk about justice and equality was within the church. Um, and, and calling the church towards living this out. And so we're actually called to be, the church is called to be like a town on a hill, a community of exiles, the body of Christ in the world, like this alternative society called to embody in advance the reign of Jesus over all people, to learn to live under Jesus' rule now so that we can live under Jesus' rule forever. That's who we're called to be. So John Mark suggests three ways that um, that the church is called to, the, the practice of church is so important. Again, get out of your head Sunday service. Important, but small part of what church is meant to be. But here's what we're called to be. Number one, a community, this is the counterculture, a community of deep relational ties in a culture of individualism and isolation. Like we're committed to one another. We're connected in a world of you do you, keep your laws off my body, don't tread on me. We must choose of our own free will to live under the authority of the New Testament charter as best exemplified by the Sermon on the Mount. And we must do so together in deep, vulnerable, interdependent relationships that stand in sharp relief to the superficiality and autonomy of our day. That's what a vision of a countercultural community 
And, um, and this is why huddles are so important, upper click is so important, home church is so important, and all the other social fabric that goes on. And it's so important. And this is why vulnerability, and I do my best as a pastor to model this, is so important. Jesus' biggest frustration were the Pharisees that presented themselves as all together, but they were as rotten on the inside. We show people the rot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> love it. Like, honestly, I geek out all the time about how freaky honest people are getting. Love it. Some people are struggling more than others. Many of our Pākehā struggle more than some of our Māori community to be really vulnerable and, and show their true selves. I don't know why that is. Probably, I don't know. I've got some theories. I'm like, come on, Pākehā, lift your game. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> nah, you're right. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Go for it, guys. This is a safe place to be raw and vulnerable and we become deeply committed to one another. We don't become brothers and sisters showing off. We become brothers and sisters when people see the real you. It's in our vulnerability that we get knitted together. It's in our weakness that His power is made perfect, not our strength. So let's continue to commit to, be, to, commit to be together and through all of this. Number two, a community of holiness and the culture of hedonism. The word holy in Hebrew, uh, kadosh, literally means set apart or unique or different. To live holy is to live differently from the world. Different in how we spend our money and our time, in how we steward power, hint, we give it away, in how we engage or refuse to engage with systems of evil and injustice, in how we talk, in how we engage in social media, think, quick to listen, <laughs> slow to speak and slow to become angry. And of course, how we do marriage and family and sex and romance and dating and singleness and what the Christians have long called chastity. In a world where the body is just meat and sex is just play for grown-ups and gender is just plumbing, we must choose to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God and not conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed. Like it is, this, like again, the gift of this sea, the gift of, of the, all the world that we swim in, swim in is that you, you have to come to a place if you're following Jesus where you have, where we, in this place, we have a culture of conviction on certain things, not a culture of compromise. Time for a culture of conviction on certain things, not a culture of compromise. Again, underneath all of that's this grace. So as we grow in that conviction, of course, to be full short all the time, but we run to the, way, the one who can make us clean. But as Titus says, his grace teaches us how to live holy lives. As you run to the Holy One, he cleanses you. And in the presence of the Holy One, you don't feel like doing unholy things anymore. His, his, we get loved into holiness, not condemned into holiness. And so having clarity around some of the stuff is super important. But we're all vulnerable. We're all messy. We all make mistakes. And that's why we confess our sins to one another. And that's how we get healed and cleansed. Now, um, next slide. Um, there's a whole lot of, I'm not going to dive into this um, uh, because I, to, to speak to any of the, sexu- the complex sexual issues of our day requires real nuance and clarity um, and, and I, I want to do that well and properly. <laughs> but um, if you're like, man, if you've got big questions around any of the stuff that's swirling around in our culture today, particularly all the normal stuff our, our teenage kids are growing up in, and all the stuff normalised on, uh, on Netflix and all the rest of it, these are the resources I would unreservedly recommend. 
a podcast called Theology and the Raw, phenomenal, uh, a, a book called Embodied by the same guy, Preston Sprinkle, uh, talking about uh, the transgender, uh, um, transgender identity in the church, stunning book. Um, Jackie Hill Perry's brilliant book, Gay Gill, Good God, um, and my favourite um, of all of those probably is A War of Love by David Bennett. Um, I love it. The story of a gay, uh, a gay activist discovering Jesus. That book is phenomenal. Um, and, could, uh, and follow him on Twitter and all the rest of it. Unbelievable. Um, and again, I love Mike Moriarty's um, moment with God where he just spoke to him and says, um, your family's greatest need is your personal holiness. Uh, and I'm like, man, what a word. And that's been bounced around my head a whole lot. But those resources are phenomenal. And can I just say, um, while um, the conversations have been low-key, it has been just an indescribable privilege in all of my pastoring years to be uh, having conversations with same-sex-attracted Christians around what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus. That's been happening consistently behind the scenes here at Bay Vineyard and in all my previous churches. And it's an indescribable privilege that people would uh, be open to having those sort of yarns. And, um, and, and again, those resources are super helpful. So again, we're coming back a community of holiness and a culture of hedonism. And, and oh God, I just got to say it. God doesn't want to ruin your fun. He wants to cause you to flourish. He, doesn't want to ruin your, he wants your soul to flourish. And the greatest lie of the enemy is that sexual sin doesn't have consequences. I'm sorry, it does. And his desire is to protect your heart, the most precious thing about you. This is absolute heart's desire. So he doesn't want to ruin your fun. He wants to, to cause you deep, real happiness. And all those other things, the lie of the enemy, he's wrecking lives left, right, and center. Um, and so, again, we're not trying to be like, oh, we're better than everyone else. No, we're trying to model this holiness and purity in a culture of hedonism and compromise. And lastly, a community of order in a culture of chaos. That's countercultural, and I love, again, the journey that most of us are on on this whole front. The way followers of Jesus have long done this, John Mark says, is by developing a rule of life. Matt and his crew were looking at this the other day. <laughs> I got a shout out. <laughs> uh, this idea of a rule of life, if that's unfamiliar language to you, don't think rules, but rule, singular. The Latin word was regular, where we get the words ruler or regulation. It's, it's the word for a straight piece of wood. Many scholars think it was the Greek word used for trellis in a vineyard. A rule of life is simply a schedule and set of practices and relational rhythms that organize our lives around Jesus' invitation to abide in the vine. It's how we live in alignment with our deepest desires for life with God and His kingdom. So it's just so simply, again, we're having lots of these yarns, but it's like, does your schedule reflect your priorities? Do you have relational rhythms in place, spiritual practices in place? Does it like your, your typical week look like a week that sees your soul flourish more and more? Does it reflect the things that you know? Again, putting it into practice. And so this, uh, again, is, is beautiful. It's like we are trying to be people of maturity in this church. And the way of Jesus is walking into greater maturity rather than just like swirling around, you have some order and priorities. And that means you have to say no to some things. And that means you have to get used to the feeling of disappointing people because you have some priorities that are in place in your life that are there and, and you're under God's authority first, blah, blah, blah. I love this. As I come into land, John Tyson's definition of, of church is this, a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to, the, to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Now that's a lot in there, but I'm like, that's, 
that's the sort of vision I want to have for our church. Deeply committed to it, stubbornly committed to one another, loyal to one another. When we're knotted together as a living kitty of, of fabric, of, of relational fabric here. And, and even though it's complex and weird and culturally, we are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Like, man, I want my life to be so, like, you know, Andre smashed it in front of all the problem the other day and all the rest of it. I'm like, his life is this picture of what God can do. Of just, he, he's carrying peace. He's carrying his presence. And it's like, and it was like, it was almost jarring for everyone in that room that was like just used to a whole lot of chaos and crazy. Here's a guy that's got peace of God on his life. And so for the renewal of the world, it's like this is what it looks like to show the world there is a way to live that sees your souls flourish. But you come under the Lordship of Jesus and then allow Him to shape you. Sanctify from glory to glory. That's how we, that's we, like people cannot live without meaning, without purpose and community. And the secular world struggles to offer that, but Jesus can and does. We have great news. So as we come into land, we're going to take communion together. Uh, I love that we're going to do this. Together we take like the one body, the one cup. Yeah, we chop it up and we stick it around the thing. But this is <laughs> metaphor. metaphor. <laughs> um, but it's the idea. We, take, we, take, we all take the bread together. We all take the juice together. It's Ribena. Sorry, this week we've struggled to find grape juice. Um, and, um, but it's like we're one in that. Mysteriously, we're one body in that space. But my, the practice... I, I, I want to ask you to ask God to give you a greater vision for the beauty of what church is called to be. And, and for, it to, uh, for you just to grasp something like this is called to be an alternative, alternative community, this counterculture, living under God's rule and reign now. And, uh, and so that's the first thing is that you would just be like, you'd have a greater commitment to the importance of the church family in this day and age in terms of navigating the world. But secondly, that you would ask God to open your eyes to see where your worldview has been a bit muddled because of the waters that you've been swimming in or the lens that's been in there that you haven't even noticed has been there. That God would just help you see things with greater clarity um, and to uh, help you see what is actually truth and what's just a distortion that's been normalised in a sinful society.